Hi, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of the other partners. We are going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of all lawyers, Elizabeth. We're going to talk about boilerplate provisions. Clients often ask, well, this, this trust is just all boilerplate, right? Oh, Robert, you know, when people say that, a part of me feels really offended. And then the other practical part of me thinks, no, actually, you're correct. There are provisions in here that make up the structure of this legal document that qualifies boilerplate, that are the same in your document that they are in mine or Sue's or Frank's or Bert's. And we have different reasons that we call it boilerplate and that it exists, that there's actually important reasons why you want certain sections in a trust or healthcare power of attorney. Some of that is what is required by law. Other boilerplate might have to do with things that after administering estates or helping people who are agents administering a power of attorney, we know what's helpful to have and that across the board a certain structure to the documents is useful. But I think that the thing I kind of stuns me, Robert, is that as soon as people say or somebody might say, you know, this is all boilerplate, somehow it gives them permission not to read it. And that's what makes me crazy. It's like, well, you know, you've you've created all of this boilerplate. I guess it's not that important. No. Actually, it is important, and it's important that you read through it because if we didn't need it, we wouldn't have included it. And sometimes people say, well, here are these provisions in my trust, and they're about life insurance. I don't have any life insurance. Well, you might have life insurance in two years. Or, you know, somebody who may say, well, Elizabeth, um, I I see this provision in your healthcare power of attorney that uh, has to do with placing placement and assisted living. I live independently, and I'm going to go kicking and screaming before anybody drags me to assisted living. So why should I have a provision about assisted living in my healthcare power of attorney? It's just it's it's kind of stunning, Robert, that people really think about the moment in time when they sign their documents, having them be current. They don't actually think about in practice when they need to be used how these provisions may come into play. I would really love it if more of our clients would read the boilerplate portions of the of the documents and argue with me. Here's why I don't think I need the life insurance section. And I can usually explain why you, why you ought to have it in there. But um, maybe you can persuade me that it ought to come out and, and your boilerplate can be tailored for you. You know, the term boilerplate comes from uh, plate steel that was used to wrap into... Uh, cylinders to make boilers, steam boilers, in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, uh, and and it has gotten, as you say, Elizabeth, kind of a, uh, a bad connotation. But if you think about it, those steam boilers, some of them were very tall and thin, and some of them were short and squat, and some of them had to have thicker steel, and some of them needed to be lighter weight, and uh, it's not necessarily negative to start with boilerplate, it's an efficient way to make the final product appropriately tailored, as we keep saying. It's not that it's boilerplate or not boilerplate, uh, or that we have to write very clever words. The real challenge is to select the correct boilerplate provisions for a given client. And you want those to be able to 
last a lifetime, right, Robert? So if we're drafting something for someone, whether it's a will or a healthcare power of attorney, we don't want to feel like that's only going to be good for the next year or two years. We want to make sure that the documents can withstand the test of time. That's one of the reasons why we may make specific references to, to current laws, and we may just reference the citation of the law rather than the specific language in the law because the law may change. There are some cases with boilerplate where what we'll do is we'll, we'll create some structure around future planning. I think our healthcare power of attorney is a really good example of that, thinking about placement, um, thinking about hiring caregivers. Yeah, you might not need it today, but wouldn't it be helpful to have it when you actually in practice do need caregivers? Right, and that is a, a tendency of lawyers to include all of the possible permutations that might come up in the future. And, and I think clients sometimes think that's overkill. But it's pretty easy. We don't, we don't charge by the word uh, or the weight of the document. It's pretty easy to include provisions that will turn out not to be needed, but that we'll really miss if, it, if there was some reason that they do turn out to be needed. And sometimes, Robert, you know, people will say, well, can't my agent add that? Or can't my spouse update my financial power of attorney? No. They're, they're your documents. You are the one who needs to create them and sign them. The only exception to that, really, Robert, is once we look at something like a trust, if you have a joint revocable trust and, and different trust, uh, trust stores or said lores, the people who are the person who establishes the trust may have the ability to make an amendment without the signature of the other trustor. So in a case of spouses, you may have an opportunity to amend a trust without the consent of a spouse. We don't see that all the time, Robert. Most oftentimes, if a married couple creates a trust, we want them to amend the trust together. But that's really the only exception to saying, well, somebody can help me down the road and update or change the document. So if you're looking at your documents or drafts, trying to decide, what is boilerplate? In a general way, I think you can assume that the really customized parts, the things that really speak to your circumstances uniquely, tend to be at the front of the document. And as you get further into the document, there's more likely to be something that you might call boilerplate provisions. Um, In fact, in our estate planning documents, we include some some, uh, call-out sections, some red print boxes that explain some of the boilerplate boilerplate provisions. And the reason we do that is because of one of the most famous, notoriously famous boilerplate provisions, which is a, a, a reference to the rule against perpetuities, which most people, their eyes will begin to glaze over if you explain the rule against perpetuities to them. So we created a little Uh, explanatory text box that says, here's what the rule against perpetuities is in a nutshell and why we have to have it in here. We will put those descriptive sections in a lot of the boilerplate portions of the documents so you understand why they're there and and we don't have to spend a lot of time discussing them. But if you want to discuss them, we're all about 
making sure that, uh, that your documents are, are appropriately customized for your circumstance. And Robert, here's a really good example of, of why it's important to read and consider boilerplate. When you think about, for instance, something like our standard revocable trust that we might create for a married couple, there's a section usually closer to the front of the trust document that talks about family relationships and may address who is a stepchild or step-grandchild or um, adopted second cousin. Well, it turns out that at the very end of our trust, there's a section, Robert, as you know, about terminology, and, and sometimes we include provisions around descriptions and identifications of who would be considered a child or somebody who could inherit. So oftentimes, Robert, we may be very specific about a particular family relationship that would be tapered in each case, and that might be at the front of the document, but it's actually near the end in some of these more miscellaneous provisions that you can see the real definition. Right. For instance, using the, the who is a child, we start from the assumption that most people think adopted children should be treated as children, and that that's true for your grandchildren, your children's adopted children as well. So that's, if you will, the boilerplate provision. But maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you want to change that uh, thing that we treat as a default. Well, you'd better have read the document so that you can tell us how you want it to be treated. Maybe you'll want to specify, I love this adopted grandchild, but I don't want any of my other kids, uh, future adopted children, to, to participate. Okay, we can tailor the boilerplate to your circumstance. So I think that's, the, that's the, really the takeaway here is boilerplate. We get a little defensive when clients ask us about boilerplate because it has a negative connotation. But boilerplate is the starting point for almost everything every lawyer writes. No lawyer sits down and invents a trust from, the, from whole cloth from the top of their head. And if they did, they would probably be um, forgetful and leave out things that they, they should have included. Uh, so we need to not be defensive about boilerplate and instead proudly proclaim, yeah, there's some boilerplate in here. We do hope that you read it and agree that we have selected the proper boilerplate. Our boilerplate comes from Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. I'm Robert Boilerplate Fleming and talking to Elizabeth Noble Rollins Freeman. And uh, we would love it if you would come back to our Elder Law Issues podcast on a future occasion and join us then. Thanks.